presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire Hey there folks We are still waiting for poor Quentin to join us So first off Tell me if I have the horrible repeating sound effect or not. And no, Bran is not the Night's King. Thanks, Joe Magician, for starting us off right. A rusted revolver, Nienna the Wise, some patrons, Lady Shar. Sounds great. Okay, cool. So now we're just waiting for poor Quentin to join us, uh, which he's working on. So he should be along any second. And yes, we went for the horns last time. I threw out something about putting on the horns if someone sent me a super chat, and then someone sent me a super chat and I didn't put on the horns. And uh, I noticed that uh, on, on Listen Back, so I figured I would go with the horns today. Give the people what they want, you know? So, uh, yeah. This will only be the second time I've had a guest on, and last time it was a total patch together job at the last second, so bear with me here. Uh, I've got a Google Hangouts up that poor Quentin's trying to get into. The Skype connection was super rocky today for some reason, so. I will go ahead and start off by asking for any questions that we have in the chat. First dibs to the people who showed up. Let's see how many people we got, by the way. Hey, Searing Abyss. We have 51 folks, all right. So thanks for coming, everyone. Uh, so what do you guys think of the Moons of Ice and Fire series and the direction that it's going? What do we think, guys? Uh, I have to tell you that when I started off this series, I definitely had a lot of notes. And I knew I had an idea about Dawn being ice, and I had a lot of the white shadow ideas. Uh, but I didn't know for sure that I was going to get so locked in on the idea that Night's King lived during the long night, which might be the most controversial thing I've suggested so far, but I find the symbolism to be really consistent and I'm only just getting into it. There's a lot more examples uh, yet to come. And it just seems like again and again, we see the symbolism of Knight's King and Knight's Queen joining up right after a long night event goes down. Like I really thought the death of Rainey's uh, and then the sequence where Visenya created the Kingsguard right after that, during that dark time that befell after Rainey's death in Dorne to be a really clear sequence of events. I was stoked on that. So is Night's Queen an other? That's a good question. So I sort of talked about this in the very first Moons of Ice and Fire, and I think that she's more similar to Melisandre in that she's like an ice priestess. But the thing is that Melisandre she's transforming into a being that subsists of fire energy. And if she keeps going, she might turn into a fire equivalent of an other. It's almost like she's doing a gradual process. So what is Night's Queen? Is she an other? I don't think she's an other quite like we see in the books, um, but she might be in the process of transforming into an other, or she might be in some sort of ambiguous state between other and human in the way that Melisandre is in some sort of ambiguous state between normal human and like complete fire being. So that's probably as specific as we can get. Painkiller Jane says she wishes I had mentioned Lady Babri as a snow commander. Yeah, you just, you run out of room in these things. I don't know what to say. I've got a lot of, 
a lot of examples that get have gotten chopped out of every episode in the interest of trying to make it streamlined. Um, but uh, I'm sure I'll circle back to that with the uh, the snowmen in Winterfell. That's what she's talking about. There's a scene in A Dance with Dragons where the guards are making snowmen that resemble the various lords. And there are Lady Barbary's there. And I think there's 12 other snowmen besides Lady Babs, which would make her like a knight's queen with a dozen others or something like that. But, uh, yeah, we'll circle back for that. Don't worry. So I see a question here. Do I think Night's King is unkillable, unstoppable? Ultimately, will he fulfill his goal? So if uh, let's just try to stay... Well, I guess we just always have to clarify whether we're talking about show Night's King and book Night's King because they're pretty different. That sounds like a show Night's King question. I would say that he's not unkillable. In the book, my suspicion is that uh, if there's a Night's King that exists, he exists inside the Weirwood Net, and that's something I'll get to eventually. Uh, once we circle back for the Weirwood ideas that are related to the others, which we will do. Uh, let's see. When was the wall constructed? So I actually have been clueless about that until recently. I kind of just recently got a, a clue about that that I think tells me that the wall was in fact built right after the Long Night. And I think it was built by a Stark that we probably think of as Brandon the Builder. Um, but I don't think Brandon the Builder, well, there's some secrets about him. Let's put it that way. I don't think he's someone that lived before the Long Night. Uh, or if he did, we're talking about multiple Brandons. Let's see. Okay, I got a message from poor Quentin here. Let me just chat back with him real quick. For those of you who don't know poor Quentin, he is, um, well, first off, he's one of the best analysts in terms of characters and themes and plot arcs and things like that. Uh, if you follow him on Twitter, he does a daily commentary on the quote of a song of, or the uh, a song of Ice and Fire tweet through. That's like a slow motion read through of the books and they tweet out a quote at a time. Uh, poor Quentin frequently puts his analysis on the back of that and it's always like super mind blowing and you're always like, whoa, dude, that is absolutely on the money. What the hell am I wearing? I'm wearing my horns, man. Wearing my horns. We're going to talk about horns today. So I'm wearing them horns. Uh, so one of the biggest things that we have to talk about is the timeline. I think probably half of all the questions I've received have been about the timeline. And I'm proposing that uh, Night's King lived during the Long Night, which throws the timeline all out of whack. Uh, so I guess I've got to sort of lay out what I think happens here. And you guys know how I do this. I follow the symbolism first, and then I try to make sense of how it could fit the story. And if the symbolism is leading me to a place that doesn't make any sense, then I'll usually figure that I've misinterpreted. Uh, but the idea that Night's King lived during the Long Night is something that people had already come up with before uh, I ever started writing about all this. So when my symbolism started leading me there anyways, um, I don't know, I feel pretty strong about it. So the first, the first question that were raised about Night's King is that we're told he's sacrificing to the others but 
if he's the 13th Lord Commander and thus living 13 Lord Commanders after the Long Night, let's say like 100 years or something, uh, then why would he be? Why would the others be around right after they were defeated, right? Why would he be sacrificing to the others only two centuries after they had been defeated uh, by the last hero or whatever? So that, that sort of invites you to question the history. And then the fact that it just says the knight was his to rule. Uh, you know, he was a man by day, but the knight was his to rule, and he's called Knight's King. I mean, I don't know. It just, on a basic level, seems like the long night is the time that he should have existed since he's Knight's King, right? Uh, but then we've got the question of the origin of the others. And we've only got a few clues about the origins of the others in the books. We've got some clues about them coming from the children of the forest. We've got the, the quotes about the children of the forest making snow nights. Um, and then we've got, hang on, let me type a message. We've got the clues about the White Walkers coming from the trees. There's a lot of clues about that. In fact, if you just read the prologue and look at the trees sort of antagonizing the Night's Watch brothers as they make their way through the woods, it's basically constant. They're catching on their clothes and they're hostile. And then the others are the White Walkers of the uh, White Walkers of the Wood, and they emerge as shadows from the dark of the wood. So it goes on and on and on. But basically, there's a strong connection with Weirwoods and Children of the Forest and the White Walkers. But that's really, really vague. It doesn't give us a process for creating White Walkers. We just know that Children of the Forest magic is involved somehow. Then we have the Craster story, where he's giving his children to the others, and they seem to be transformed into White Walkers somehow. But there's a lot of gaps in that knowledge. We don't know... I mean, we don't know how a baby is transformed into a tall white walker. Like, do they wait for it to grow up and then transform it? Or when they transform it, does it just like, just like get tall all of a sudden? Or is it like they take the baby and sacrifice it and its spirit combines with some sort of aspect of the weirwoods to create a white walker? I mean, there's a lot of theories that you can come up with to fill in the gaps of how we get from craster baby to white walker and even the show doesn't show you that it just shows night king touching the baby's eye and it turns blue but again we don't know how that baby turns into a white walker like does it have to wait 20 years does it go through an angsty teenage white walker phase you know like yeah what's puberty like for a white walker we don't know like we have no idea so these are complete you know maybe they have a society maybe they got a little town and they've got a whole culture i mean they do ride horses and have armor and stuff it's just completely in the dark. We, we don't know. And so the thing is that Knight's Queen and Knight's King were sacrificing to the others. And that this, this story is so close to the Long Night. And it has these clues that sound like the Long Night. So it's just like, this sounds like an origin story for the others. And then we go through the symbolism and we find again and again the Knight's Queen figures making white shadows, it seems to be like this is the main message George is pushing about the origin of the others, is that they come from Knight's Queen and that they come from Weirwoods. Um, now we have the fact that uh, Nissa Nissa could be Knight's Queen in some sense, or it could be like Nissa Nissa's spirit reincarnated, uh, you know, or sort of jumped back out of the Weirwood net. The point is, I think at this point, we know Nissa Nissa is a child of the forest or a child of the forest hybrid. 
And so it's very possible that Knight's Queen has Green Seer abilities as well. In fact, I think it's overwhelmingly likely that that's the case. Uh, I love the Weirwood mask that Val wears. I think that's a big clue because Val's like pretty much the most vivid Knight's Queen figure that we have, I think. Uh, so, so basically what I'm saying is this Knight's Queen, Knight's King story, to me, I think this is the origin story of the others. And I think that Craster and Gilly recreating that pattern is, is an important clue about that. So let me check in on poor Quentin real quick. Dual-edged sword of technology. It enables great things and great frustration. Question, would the Stark King have taken Knight's King children as hostages and had offspring with them? Uh, yes, Thunderclap, that is a great question. Uh, and that is kind of where I'm going with this. I think that the origins of the Starks um, go back to a Knight's King baby that was not transformed into an other, obviously, um, all the way, or else they couldn't have created the Starks. But I think the reason why the Starks have a connection to the others is because, yes, there was a Brandon Ice Eyes Stark, absolutely. Um, I think that essentially a monster, the baby monster, is really important as a symbol. It's showing you the origin of House Stark. It's showing you how one baby that's meant to be an other didn't become an other and instead went south of the wall. And there's all these clues about what monster might become, okay? There's, there's one story about, uh, or not one story, but there's a possibility, if you will, where uh, when Stannis offers John Winterfell, it, that would come along with marrying Val. And if he marries Val, they talked about adopting uh, Mance Raider's baby and monster, essentially, and fostering them at Winterfell. And so in that sense, you would have then monster, the, the other baby, growing up as an adopted son of Winterfell. And so that's giving you one clue. The other clue is that Sam talks about taking monster and passing him off as his own bastard with Gilly and sending him with Gilly to live at Horn Hill. Then you have a situation where if Dickon were to die, which, you know, Dickon is eminently expendable, then we might have a thing where Monster would become the uh, Lord of Horn Hill. He would become the new, the head of a first man house. So if you just have the Tarleys stand in for the Starks, you can see the same pattern happening. And I'm actually going to do a whole essay about this because I've found multiple echoes and parallels of this story. And so I think, I think it's, basically this is the last hero story. This character, this Knight's King's son that got away, I think this is the last hero. I definitely think it's Brandon the Builder. And I think that this is why he was able to raise the wall because he had a certain affinity with ice magic. That's how that happened. So that's how we get someone with ice magic that can build the wall as a purpose to stop the others because the others are the only ones we've seen that can uh, manipulate ice magic. Uh, so somebody's asking me, would the Fire Moon Queen Nissa Nissa be the Amethyst Empress? Yes. And the Ice Moon Queen be children of... Okay, so Nissa Nissa, I believe, is a children of the forest character. And 
I'm not sure if she's also Night's Queen or what the overlap is with Night's Queen. If Nissa Nissa is Night's Queen, I have a feeling like Nissa Nissa's spirit went into the Weirwood Net when she died the first time and then somehow got spit back out. But I think Night's Queen might be a completely separate figure as well. Question from Anku Blackworm. Question Q&A, would Arthur Dane knighting Jamie hint at the transformation process? A dragon person with an ice sword. Yeah, hmm, that's, that's a good one, isn't it? Uh, cuts through Jamie and knights him. Then another dragon, Ares, makes him a white knight. Yeah, I, that's, that thought has definitely occurred to me, too. Um, that Dawn might be part of the process of creating others. That has occurred to me because... Um, we've got the whole idea that the show did with the Dragonglass creating Night's King, which kind of doesn't make exact sense because Dragonglass kills White Walkers. Um, and I've had this niggling sense that Dawn has a, a purpose beyond just being a sword or just catching on fire and being a flaming sword. I think it might be like the world's best glass candle. It's like a milk glass candle. Or maybe it's used to kill dragons. I've suggested that because, you know, Valyrian steel kills White Walkers, so maybe Dawn kills dragons. And the other question is, yeah, maybe Dawn is used to create others. And I forget, there's one other echo besides um, Sir Arthur knighting Jamie of that idea, but I can't remember where it is. I'm, it's an idea that I'm going to get back to at some point. But, yeah, that was a good question. Monica asks... What do you think is the significance of the connection between the Lannisters and House Florent? Uh, oh, are you talking about Floris the Fox? Oh, you're right. The Lannisters are descended of Floris the Fox, and House Florent obviously has that great blue rose crown symbolism. Uh, so, I, you know, I haven't thought about that. That is a good question. I don't have a ready-made answer for you. Maybe you could tell me if you've thought about it, Painkiller Jane. Don't hold out the wisdom. Hey, Sanry. Yes, I'm wearing the horns today. Uh, yeah, so Nienna the Wise points out that Stannis is trying to make John the heir of House Stark, and John himself is symbolic of a Night's Queen baby because Lyanna is a Night's Queen figure, and he was basically uh, taken, if you will, by the Lord of House Stark and then raised as a Stark. So, yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, John is the most important echo of this figure. But the, there's other echoes like Edric Dane, Edric Storm, um, Monster, and possibly even Theon. Yeah, Theon too. And I forget, there's probably a couple others too. But yeah, so John is also the second son of Rhaegar. Yes, he is. Monster is Gilly's baby, the one that Sam and Gilly smuggled away from his fate. How kind of them. Um, and also, so some other people that uh, parallel John and Monster and the child of uh, a Knight's Queen figure would also be um, Magor the Cruel, who's a monster, and also Shireen, because Shireen is the daughter of Selyse who's Stannis's Ice Queen. And Shireen obviously is very nice and not a monster, but the grayscale is what would make her a monster. So I'm not, the grayscale is one of those puzzles I've been trying to 
solve for a long time. I really have no idea what Grayscale is saying. Uh, but my best clue is that it's a it's a way that dragons were turned back into stone, right? So Grayscale, the first story we have about it was the Valerians. It's like the revenge of the Roinar. After the Valerians massacred them, the vapors rose up from the Roin and infected a lot of the Valerians with Grayscale. Uh, and then those Valerians ended up under the water. So it's kind of uh, like a freezing of the dragons, which is kind of like a transformation of dragon people into others. And so that fits the idea of uh, grayscale being symbolic of turning into an other somehow. But I haven't figured out how all that works, so don't don't hold me to that interpretation. Do I think Knight's King had different weaknesses than a typical White Walker? Yeah, Knight's King, so again, Book Knight's King, talking about the original one who made the others with Knight's Queen, he would basically be some sort of transformed dragon lord. I don't, you know, I've been, if he, I think he's a Zor High senior, in which case he's got some sort of, I don't know if you'd quite call him a zombie, but he's, he's transformed beyond, he's transcended normal life. So he's the symbolism is of him being half dead. Uh, got word from Emmett here. One second. I don't know why we're having so much trouble with this. Joe Magician, what are you talking about? Weirwood Crown, Taking of the Fire of Naga. What's this now? The Grey King? Are you suggesting the Grey King and uh, Grayscale might have some crossover symbolism? Yeah, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Do I think the Grey King was a human or a Deep One? So I think the whole Deep Ones, aquatic people, um, I do think there are fish people in the story, but I think that for the most part, they're serving as a metaphor in the sense of the Grey King. All the stuff about under the sea is really clues about green seeing and weirwoods and stuff like that, as I've mentioned a couple of times. That's uh, Ravenous Reader's great discovery that I'm going to write several essays about because it's really important. Uh, so the whole thing about Grey King, all that under the sea stuff, all that's talking about is Grey King being a green seer who went into the green sea, S-E-E-C. Uh, Mr. Lanby's asking if I could comment on the themes of the horned men, most notably the Baratheon brothers getting cuckolded, which of course is, you know, when uh, Cersei says we're giving Robert horns, that means they're, you know, basically Jamie is making Cersei pregnant. Uh, and passing it off as Robert's kid. And so <clears throat> it's sort of a play on the whole Robert being a horned lord idea. Let's see. Uh, I So I don't really know what's going on there. I have a friend called Unchained who is tracking down this sort of brother versus brother drama that seems to be there. So it's possible that that whole cuckolding thing could have something to do with this Night's King baby that I'm talking about. Like maybe the Night's King baby, much like John, essentially gets planted in a different family and then raised as a son of somebody else and then inherits. Like Lan kind of does that, <clears throat> according to one myth. So there is a theme about that going on, but I don't, I haven't traced it out to give you like a good answer just yet. But that is a good question. There is something going on with that, Mr. Lanby. Let's see, here's a question. Does dying while skin changing an animal actually make the skin changer more powerful? Verimir's ability to skin change multiple animals seeming to increase as he dies in animal bodies. Oh, that I've never thought about that. Um, 
I don't know why that would be. I think Vermeer probably grows in power as he uses it more, but I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about that one too much. Do we have to pay extra to get poor Quentin in the stream due to net neutrality? Yes. Oh, there's an Ajit Pai pop-up window right here asking for $10. Yes, that's, that's why it's not working. Uh, no. Good joke, though. Let's see. Do you think the original triangle could have been two brothers and a woman? Yeah, very definitely so. Um, in fact, I think I've seen some where, you know how usually the comet is like the sword or the seed of the Sun King? Sometimes I've seen it where the comet and the sun are different people. Like imagine Robert as the Sun King and Jamie as the comet. And I'll explain why Jamie can be the comet in a minute. But just imagine, basically Robert is the Sun King and, Le and uh, Cersei is his fire moon bride. And they're supposed to have kids together, but along comes a comet and impregnates the fire moon kind of right underneath, right in front of the sun. And then those kids would actually be the comet's kids in that case. Because you gotta remember, like these celestial scenarios can be spun any different number of ways. Like sometimes the fire moon and the sun together is considered one person and that's the dark solar king. But other times that's the, the sun and his wife, you know, mixing. Uh, and in this and sometimes the comet can be the sun's linga or his sword, or it can be the, you know, the interloper. So the whole idea is that Ma that Martin's created this one celestial scenario that can be spun into various human dramas, like a little template, uh, because the human dramas are what's more important, really, of course. So I got a really interesting comment on Twitter from one of my Patreon patrons. Really sharp cookie, and I wrote it all down so I could read it to y'all. This is from Nienna the Wise, the Purse of Phoenix, guardian of the Ice Dragon, whose words are from sorrow, wisdom, and she is in the chat. So check this out. This will be just about two minutes here. She says, just started Moons of Ice and Fire 4. Um, I've been thinking about Stannis. He's one of my favorite non-POV characters, and what intrigues me about his symbolism, R.E. Azor Ahai and the Night's King, is what it potentially tells us about the motivations of the characters who lie behind, behind the archetypes. Think about it. When Stannis is acting more in his Azor high role, his motivation is to gain a throne he believes is his by rights. And in the process, he kills his brother, a claimant to the throne, with blood magic. Sounds an awful lot like the Bloodstone Emperor and the Blood Betrayal. But when he's acting in his Knight's King role, his motivation is actually to protect the land from the Great Other, which Mel seems to think is the leader of the Others. What if the Other is an Other Moon Disaster, the Second Long Night? I've been questioning the motivation of the others for a while, and Stannis gets me thinking that maybe, just maybe, the others were created to protect humanity from the Long Night. Sounds weird and wrong, but bear with me. So, as the dragon LML, that's my Twitter handle, has pointed out in the Green Zombie series, what is the best way to survive the Long Night to become a being of cold fire who doesn't need sleep, food, sunlight, or warmth? So she's comparing being a zombie to being an other. They both equip you to survive the Long Night, right? So beings of cold fire who don't need to sleep... Uh, what if the Night's King and his Queen were attempting to save humanity from the Long Night by turning them into others? The others killing people and turning them into whites could therefore be a perversion of that original mission to save people by turning them into undead people who can survive the Long Night. 
Stannis symbolizes this in his mission to go to the Wall and protect the realm, while in the process setting himself up as a new knight's king. To me, this makes sense of the other's Kingsguard correlations, safeguard the king who protects the realm. And I love how, if this is true, it flips the entire narrative of Azor Ahai Knight's King on its head. Azor Ahai isn't the hero, Knight's King is. Only the others got out of control, and their mission has been both, both misunderstood and perverted. The others could have been triggered by a knowledge that the new Long Knight is impending and are acting preemptively to save people by turning them into the undead, and that's save with air quotes. After all, what is dead might never die. What better way to ride out a second major natural disaster than covers the world in darkness than by being undead? Maybe Night's King unleashed the others to help humanity but couldn't stop them. Thus the wall to keep them at bay. What one, uh, which once again plays into the theme that I've brought up once again, uh, again and again, of humans playing with magic they shouldn't and either causing disasters or making things worse. Maybe the children used their magic to resurrect and Night's King realized he could use it but lost control. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw this out there because I was inspired. I uh, love listening to At the Dragon LML because it always makes me think of things I never would have. Okay, so there's two things about this comment. One is the individual theory that she's proposed about the whole idea of turning people into others in order to enable them to survive the long night. But a lot of other people have also proposed that the last hero might turn into the Knight's King and that his sacrificing to the others, quote unquote, is actually um, like fulfilling a pact and that he was actually becoming the hero by giving his babies to the others, as dark as that is, that was part of the agreement that got the others to hold off and somehow ended the long night. And so that kind of fits with the same idea here that she's talking about um, where the Knight's King is doing something to protect humanity. Because the really interesting thing she points out is that when Stannis is doing more of the Azor High stuff, he really is, you know, in it for himself and he kills his brother. Uh, but then later he goes to the Wall and starts doing the Knight's King stuff, although he still does, you know, wave Lightbringer around. So that's not totally clean. But when he does go to the Wall, he's he does it because he's concerned with saving the realm. Remember that whole line where he's like, oh, I was trying to be king, and, and then I realized I needed to go and basically do the job of being king instead of just claiming it. Um, so if Knight's King is a hero in any sense, whether it's you know any of the theories you prefer, there's definitely a lot of ideas out there that Knight's, Queen, Knight's King wasn't just a bad guy. And if that's the case, she might be onto something here with our Knight's King actually acting heroic. And the same with John. He parallels Night's King by letting the wildlings through the wall because the wildlings parallel the others. But at the same time, John's actually doing the right thing by letting the wildlings through the wall. So he's trying to protect human uh, humankind when he does that. So those that's definitely a pretty strong clue that whatever Night's King was doing might not have been terrible. Because my whole theory is that Azor High, the original phase when he broke the moon, this was the original sin. And if he survives all the way to the end and becomes Knight's King or Last Hero, this would essentially be a redemption arc for Azor Ahai, or at the very least, he's dealing with the fallout of his own mistake. Um, and if Knight's King is the last phase in the Azor Ahai sort of character cycle, or one of the latter phases, then that sort of fits with that idea too. I've got horns on my head, Rob. You have never seen somebody with horns before? Come on, man. Don't hang out in the forest enough. Eat more peyote. Yeah, we might have to do this another time with poor Quentin. It, it, we are having a lot of trouble 
let me try one more thing. Yeah, there you are. Now, let me see if I can now put this window into the thing so they can see and hear you. How we doing, guys? My name is Emmett Booth. I go by Port Clinton on Tumblr and Twitter. Guys, can we hear him now? No, I see a sad trombone emoji. Oh, wait, no, yes. Oh, we can hear him now. Hello. Hey. All right, go ahead. How's it going? Do the official introduction. <laughs> All right, sorry for the delay, guys. My name is Emmett Booth. I go by Port Quentin on Tumblr and Twitter. I've been writing about A Song of Ice and Fire in Game of Thrones for a few years. I covered Season 7 of Game of Thrones for Deadspin. And I uh, particularly like talking about uh, things going on with uh, Euron Greyjoy and the southwest of Westeros and the end, end times coming for the whole continent. So happy to be here. And that's actually a great place to start. Um, let's go ahead and whip out the Eldritch Apocalypse theory because uh, I don't know sure. that there's a... I was giving you a hard time about this, but because you sort of wrote it a long time ago and then it sort of evolved in your Tumblr posts, there's really not a go-to one place to find it. And so I think a lot of people have heard a little bit about it, but aren't super clear. So go ahead and lay out the basics. Sure. So, it's, yeah, it's kind of a cluster of a lot of different little ideas that I've had kind of over time. And a lot of people have kind of expanded on it or had ideas part of it. Uh, a lot of people have written kind of different I say it's on Reddit and elsewhere about happenings in Old Town and the Ironborn plot that kind of dovetail with it. But the basic idea is that a lot of the kind of end times action and prophesizing that marks the return of the Long Night and the, the age of wonder and terror, as Lazy Leo Terrell puts it, is centered around uh, Old Town, the Ironborn, and Euron Greyjoy. And uh, not just in their actions, but in the way their actions, and this is something you've talked about a lot, are kind of mirror and reflect and kind of and ripples backward in time in terms of stuff that's happened in those area areas and with characters like that. And uh, so, you know, this for me range for me. I think Euron is the key human character in terms of bringing about the Long Night. Uh, I, I know we uh, differ at least somewhat on on what the Horn stands staring around, but I think there's a strong chance that it's the Horn of Winter that could bring down the wall and that Euron can get his hands on it. I think his backstory speaks strongly to him being the kind of guy who would want to do that, and he has strong parallels to both Night King and the Bloodstone Emperor as the kind of character, the kind of agent of the apocalypse, unwitting puppet perhaps or not, and uh, Old Town is just as a city, this kind of this, you know, beautiful Lovecraftian history to it that kind of feeds into it still, even as the maesters try to deny it, and I think that's just the perfect context. And then on top of that, you got all the direct Lovecraftian stuff from World of Ice and Fire, the kind of uh, stories about the drowned god and the deep ones uh, and how that's kind of feeding into what Euron's doing in the imagery in the Forsaken. So I think you could see uh, the, the the black and bloody tide, as Melisande describes described it, as Euron striding into Old Town with whites and, and krakens and all sorts of monsters on his way to bring them up the end of the world. So that's just kind of what I've been writing about in bits and pieces for a couple of years now. And the great thing about this is that you picked up on this before The Forsaken came out. Uh, and there's a lot this of clues about it in, like, A Dance with Dragons and Feast for Crows. Um, but Forsaken just, like, turns it up to 11. It's just like, here's Euron with a squid face full of tentacles. And here's Euron on the Iron Throne with all the dead gods. And here's Euron, you know, just drinking shade of the evening like it's, you know, like it's all good. And wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Basically, yeah, Absolutely. You must have felt like I'm going to feel like when uh, 
we all open Winds of Winter and read about the comet striking the moon, <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was a great, you know, uh, the nightmare came real kind of moment where, yeah, well, a lot of what was subtext in Seats and Dance just kind of got wrenched into, into the foreground, into the text for the forsaken. The, the imagery became so clear and uh, the implications of what you're on is trying to do so strong. But a lot of it was buried deep in dance, as you say. I mean, Euron is introduced immediately talking about the, the range of gods he's seen in the world and how people pray to them and what people are demanding of them and what people are sacrificing to them that he's kind of taken, you know, if, if so much about the Ironborn plot is about how the Ironborn are narrow-minded and have, like, you know, very limited vision about what's going on. Euron is saying, I've, I've been all over the world. I've seen the full spectrum of what humanity is trying to accomplish and what we think the gods want from us. And here I am trying to deliver my, my thesis statement on it. And, it's, and then he goes on to say, I, you know, sown, sown, they're screaming women with my seed and spilled their blood into the ocean. And that's, that's kind of my crusade in response to that and seeing what people have made of their gods. And then he goes on to King's News to give this huge speech. I mean, there's the dragon binder, of course, which immediately sets them apart from the rest of the Ironborn and puts them in much more of this kind of cosmic horror realm. And then you have his speech about how, you know, all of Westeros is dying. And I, as the crow's eye, have this sight to see this coming and know what it means. And you do get the sense with the context of Dragonbinder and his overall sorceress attitude in the shade of the evening that he's not just talking about the War of Five Kings, that he's talking about the, the age of wonder and terror and the kind of re return of magic, a lot of it to, to apocalyptic ends. So the Forsaken definitely brought that to the fore, but he was hiding it the whole time previously. You know, he had to have the smiling eye ahead of the crow's eye to fool the ironborn, but that stuff was always, always in him. Yeah, that's a that was a great line uh, in in one of the visions where it's like Euron showed his blood eye now, dark and terrible, and it's just like, oh man, he's been keeping this thing covered the whole time, and now he's showing it. Like, what does that mean? He's showing you his eye. It's like totally vague and nebulous, but it sounds spooky. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And, it's, you know, he's showing it to Dampere specifically because he kind of wants Dampere's audience. You know, he's the one who's saying, look at what I can do. I can hijack the Ironborn. I can impale the gods. And, you know, all the things that you thought could protect yourself from me and from what I represent is, you know, I'm just going to wash it all away. So do you think and, this um, is Euron just yeah. giving an evil speech for the sake of, like, cackling and glee? Or does he really want to make Aaron his prophet? Like, is he planning on sacrificing Aaron or turning him into a vessel? That's an excellent question. I mean, you know, far from the first person to point this out, but what is dead may never die is, you know, seems to, as well as, you know, literally referring to kind of the religious revivalism in the Iron Islands could easily point towards a, a white situation for Euron's Ironborn followers, including Dampere. Uh, so did you, a, like, uh, did you like the, the catch was, I found about where it says, uh, these others are my drowned men? Yes, I love that. That was, that was uh, just imagine the capital O there uh, in place of the lowercase one, and that, and that, that fit perfectly. Like, a, like with Melisandre and Snow, all you need to do is just change the cap. And that's exactly what he's saying. I agree. Um, or you know, or like Patchface when he said, uh, "We will, we will march into the sea and march out of it." You know, that could that could easily prefigure what happens to the Ironborn after Euron uh, sacrifices them all to attain godhood, which I think is what he's going for there. That's that's the religious layers of you know Euron. You know, he's obviously a uh, literal pirate as well, but he's just this, this layer of religious sorcery to his characters that really drew me in. So um, I don't know if you've heard me mention it. I've only mentioned this thing around the margins, but. All of the aquatic symbolism in the books 
turns out mm. to be uh, talking about the Weirwood Net and Under the Sea. So this is a discovery made by my friend Ravenous Reader and a couple others that were sort of threading with her. And it started off trying to figure out what Patchface is talking about. And there's a lot of different ideas about Patchface. One of the ideas is that Under the Sea is actually north of the wall. And so, like, the wall, imagine, like, the wall as the crust of ice on a pond, and then above yes, the wall is yes. actually under the, the crust and therefore under the sea. And there's all these quotes about the, the forest being like an ocean in John's chapter that play into it. But it really comes down to just a simple pun on green seer and green sea, like the green sea is in the ocean sea. So when things are in the green sea, they're actually in the weirwood net. And once you make that flip, all of the aquatic symbolism makes sense. So essentially, the way that the, the drowned men are others, they are spirits coming out of the weirwood net. That's what it means. When they go in the water and die and then come out as others, that's essentially just telling you that the White Walkers are tree spirits in some sense that come out of the weirwood net, or they're people that died went into the weirwood net and then came out in corporeal form. And that's why the White Walkers are the White Walkers of the woods, and they have some sort of origin in Children of the Forest magic and Greenseer magic. I, I'm still trying to figure out how the process actually works, because that's always the last thing for me. Like, I follow the symbolism first, sure, sure. and then come up with tinfoil to like make it make sense, right? <laughs> no, absolutely. I think you follow the tone and the themes, and then the details come later. I think that's generally a, a good way to go. But yeah, I, I like that a lot. I mean, and that ties into Euron's uh, potential backstory with Bloodraven. I mean, if, if all the oceanic imagery in his storyline is ultimately stripped away to reveal that what he's really been marinating in since his child is Weirwood Net. Like, that was his first real introduction to these kind of huge magical wells of power, these meta-narratives he could conquer and would spend the rest of his life conquering. I think that connects absolutely. And you have, you know, Euron, you know, he's, he's a... You know when it says he threw a dragon egg into the sea? See, now that's, like, totally different. You're like, whoa, wait a minute, what did he just do? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, he, he's, a, he's a symbolically, like, convenient, useful character. He ties a lot of different images and a lot of different scenes together, and is, he's kind of arguing himself in-universe that all these things are the same. Again, that God monologue he delivers in the feast when he first shows up, he's saying that, you know, all these religions, have their, you know, they're different faiths and they're different icons, but I'm, I'm trying to... I'm trying to thread that needle and see what connects them all in the same way that the faceless men are trying to do that with their hall of the many gods and their many faith gods. They're looking for the, they're looking for the, the Joseph Campbell commonality. You know, that's what they're looking to find. And that's what Euron's looking to find too, albeit for completely apocalyptic end. So wait, wait, yeah, wait, wait. To... I think you just called the faceless men a Joseph Campbell death cult. <laughs> Pretty much. That's what they are. They're looking that's for the true. collective unconsciousness. That's, that's what they're about. I knew there was a reason that I had you on here. <laughs> My pleasure, brother. I want to go back to, go. like, the, the whole thing that you just said about Euron. The whole idea, like, when people are trying to identify Azor High Echoes, they're looking for the sure. Bleeding Star, and they're looking for the Three Forgings, and they're looking for all the details of the myth. But the most important part of the Azor High myth is the Promethean Luciferian aspect of reaching for the fire of the gods, challenging the gods, and seeking to become like a god. That is that is the real theme of the Azor High Lightbringer fable. It's the theme of the Weirwood Net, and that's why Lightbringer can serve as a metaphor both for the Weirwood Net knowledge and like the flaming sword tech or the dragon bond or any of that stuff, because it's the it's the godlike power that man has collected. And so Euron is fascinating because he's the clearest 
uh, like by far the clearest incarnation of a human that literally is trying to be like a god. I mean, he flat out says it. He's flat out doing it. He is trying to become the new god that rises from the charnel pits. Not an avatar of a god, but like a real god on earth. And this is why it's so fascinating to study him as a Bloodstone Emperor parallel and an Azor High parallel. Like, forget the Night's King part and the others for a minute. Just think about Euron as the original sinner, the moonbreaker, the one who's reaching for the fire. Like, it's just, it's just written all over his character. That's, that's what I love about Euron. 100%. I agree. There's, there's a huge theme in the story is, you know, the mortal, it's the 2001 moment where Dave Bowman's in the bed and he's dying and he's reaching out for the monolith to be reborn. That's a huge moment across the Song of Ice and Fire. You see that with Bran, obviously, over and over and over again with Bran. But you see it even with the, a more minor character like Quentin, who, like, his last action is reaching out to this metaphysical well that is going to reject him and that he actually doesn't have a part in and just completely annihilates him. And Euron, I, I, I agree, is the, is the most kind of stripped away, focused, direct exploration of that theme and that he wants to not just touch it and explore it, but become it. He wants to, he's, you know, I think I'll, uh, the Verimer Sixkin prologue obviously does a lot, of, and you've touched on it before, does a lot of work in terms of symbolism and imagery and foreshadowing for John and Bran, a variety of characters, but I also think it's in their part to allude to someone like Euron, that I could see his, his last protest, his last words, being shaking his fist upwards and going, these were the gifts you gave me. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the kind of position that he's in. He, he's trying to make that leap. I, you know. So I'm, I'm interested in that... to see what extent he succeeds. So I'm glad that you mentioned Quentin. I mean, it's not really a surprise that you mentioned Quentin, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad that you mentioned true, him true. because his, uh, his story is definitely symbolic of this idea. And I'm going to tackle that whole scene with him and the dragon, uh, Regal, of course, the green dragon. Uh, and all, by the way, all the green seer and green sea punnery is tied to green dragons and also the sea dragon. See, when you realize what the S-E-A, S-E-E pun means, you the whole sea dragon thing makes more sense because I've already been saying that the sea dragon is about green seers by virtue of the weirwood ribs of Naga that are called the sea dragon. But... It's actually talking about a dragon green seer as well, which is what I'm talking about the Grey King as. So in any case, Quentin, he tangles with the green, with the green dragon. So this, this can mm. symbolize somebody trying to become a green seer. And the symbolism of Rhaegal is really great. He's got the green of like a deep wood, which is the same as Jojen's moss eyes. It's the same word description of the deep woods at night or something like that. And essentially what Quentin does, let me confine what I'm going to say here. I don't want to give away the whole thing. So the cool thing is that he's, he's this reaching for the fire of the gods character. He tries to become the dragon rider, and he fails in the real world. But what happens to him? He gets set on fire and becomes a burning man. And that, of course, is a symbol of death transformation through fire, which is what Azor Ahai does when he becomes a dragon lord or whatever it is. So then he dies, but he doesn't die right away. He spends three days dying, right? And after he dies, we get a couple chapters. Then we get the John chapter where John is murdered. Right after John is murdered with the slash across the throat that he didn't feel at first, it opens with Barristan looking at 
Quentin's dead body, and it says the prince was three days in dying. And so this is one of those ones where he's connecting the two chapters together to tell one archetypal story, where John's death and Quentin's death are really the same death. So there's three days dying, that's your Jesus symbolism. And then uh, uh, Barristan looks up and sees the sunrise as a thin red slash on the horizon and sits there and thinks about how sometimes with the deep cut, you don't feel it and the blood comes first. And that's exactly what just happened to John. So the whole story there of Quentin's death and John's death is actually one story about this Christ-like hero being a fire-transformed being, riding a, a green dragon, spending three days dead, and then returning again. Uh, and, and Barristan goes on to talk about Danny returning and the dragons returning and a dragon dawn and all this stuff. So it's a pretty cool I section. Could... You're going to like it oh, when yeah, I get I to that. More. Absolutely, <laughs> man. I love all, every, every part of that. I would extend it further. I think you could take everything you just said and apply it to what happens in the next Danny chapter in terms of her kind of collapsing into, you know, her physical state and then her rebirth, you know, dealing with the miscarriage and the blood and then a kind of her apotheosis by the end of the chapter. And then if you look at the epilogue, uh, you have Varys talking about Egan as this kind of, you know, this hero character we thought was dead, but now has kind of been reborn in the sense that it's not really him, but it's taken on the name. Well, Tyrion gonna, says it yeah, too. Uh, when Tyrion yeah. is talking to Quentin, or no, he's talking to Fagon on the pole boat, and he's paraphrasing like the pitch to Danny. He's like, "Oh, it's your nephew. I'm back from the dead, and I'd like a dragon, please. I've washed the blue out of my hair." But that's again, yeah, it's the idea of him coming back from the dead. Yeah, it's all. You're right. I think it's one big story, and they're meant to kind of reflect on each other, like. After we just saw what happened with Quentin and John, that's supposed to make it look somewhat askance and various plans for Egan. Like, really, you think that's going to work out just perfectly for you? That you're you're going to have this easy, nice, wonderful rebirth when we've just seen kind of the hell that Quentin and John went through? And yeah, the Quentin and John, there's huge connections between their deaths there. Um, and obviously, there's a kind of pathos in that John will be restored and get his rebirth, but Quentin is kind of born to born to die and born to you know realize along the way that he's not the main character and not that he's gonna he has the beats like you say he has the beats and the imagery and the kind of structure of that archetype he even has the drop he of dragon blood too he gets the drop of dragon blood he's the prince like he has all these things but he doesn't he doesn't he's the fro he, you know kisses the beautiful princess as the frog all the archetypal stuff is there but he doesn't actually get anything out of it he doesn't there's no payoff for him no or if there's a payoff it's not for him he's he realizes he was just kind of a narrative cog in the machine that he was he was functionally functionally there to move the story along and he realizes that about himself which is kind of a horrifying realization to have to come to about yourself that you're a secondary character and yeah i, I completely agree that quentin and john reflect their deaths reflect off each other and you get that the strong imagery uh, which i yeah i never put together there the thin red flash that's exactly correct and like i love what you said about the um the, right, the feeling comes later because the same thing happens with quentin he doesn't realize he's burning until he looks at it and then suddenly he realizes he's on fire, and then he starts. He gets the one moment of oh, his one last moment of clarity as a human being, and then he starts to scream. Like this didn't oh, work. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing. It's one of my favorite moments in the whole series. It's like this moment of realization, where it just you're. He you, you gets this one little second of realizing he, it's gonna that the end of his life is gonna be unimaginably painful right before it starts, and it's yeah, it's just absolutely chilling. So did you have you picked up on all the 
frog Cranogman symbolism that's hanging on Quentin? Like, obviously, he's called Frog, but have you picked it? Okay, because he's, he's made, so he's compared to Mud, like, three different times. He has Mud hair, Barristan calls him Mud, and there's there's one other one. So he's he's Mud three times over, and then he's, um, but the thing is, the Cranogmen are called Mudmen, okay? Then he, True. Quentin is also called Frog, and the Cranogmen are also called Frog Eaters. Uh, and then when... He right before he gets burned by Regal, he says, "Bring the food." But as soon as he says, "Bring the food," it says his voice croaked, and he's like, "I'm turning into frog again." So the joke is that he's actually the food. When he says, "Bring the food," it's actually him. He's the froggy food, and the green dragon is now the frog eater. Okay, but at the same time, Quentin symbolizes the green dragon in that he's the green seer dragon turning into a green seer through death transformation when he rides the green dragon, like riding the snake, if you're familiar with uh, <laughs> old SNL. So there's a whole... Indeed, um, indeed. So the whole idea of Quentin's character is that he's symbolizing somebody that's a dragon person, but also a children of the forest person. That's what all the mud men symbolism is about, is it makes him... It. It's, it symbolizes him as a Cranog man, which is obviously a, a hybrid children, human creature. So I'm going to go into all that in, uh, cause it's all related to the green sea and the underwater symbolism. you like, that's why we have a Jade sea, by the way, when Danny goes to the mm. Jade sea and sails around and wears a green dress and then goes to the 13 and asks for ships, which would be sea dragon boats. Cause she'll be sailing on them. There's like, just, it's just tons of green seer symbolism, uh, with Danny's stuff which is actually a big secret I've been holding out on because it doesn't make any sense at first. And so when I present it, I'm going to have to hit people with a sledgehammer of examples. But it's Danny has a shit ton of green seer symbolism. And I don't know if it is because she's symbolizing Azor High, who was a green seer, in the same way that, like, Barrick's not a green seer, but he he sits in a weirwood cave and has one eye to sort of tip us off that the flaming sword guy was a green seer. So it could be a thing like that. Um, oh, did I lose you? Oh, nope. All good. Hi. Yeah, but yeah, I, I completely agree. It's, uh, it's just the imagery, imagery there just to clue you in. But it uh, could yeah, be. But it could be. It could yeah. be more tinfoil. It could be the fact that Danny has that Blackwood blood, and that the blood of the Dragon Bond is actually some mutated form of the Green Seer magic, which is something I suspect. So in a sense, Danny is a Green Seer because she's like the dragon version of one. Um, but we'll have to see how, how yeah. those things, you know, relate to each other or if they do. Well, and it all goes back to the sea, like you said, as a source of imagery. I mean, like Victorian literally confuses the Dothraki Sea for a literal sea. And then there's Dany on the Dothraki Sea at the end. And, it, you know, kind of, it does feel kind of very underwater and almost like womb-like when she's in that last chapter in dance. So, yeah, I think that looks together really well. I would also, I'd be remiss, I was just thinking we were talking about... Uh, Quentin is symbolically Cranong Man. I would be remiss without calling out a, a Chloe Ketchum, a.k.a. Lies and Arbor's theory. Uh, or, that, you know, the theory she's been working on a lot about uh, Ashara Dane uh, being, uh, Gianna, in truth, Gianna Reed, Helen Reed's wife and uh, mother to Mira and Dojin. And the way that I could almost see that as an echo of, like, you've got Dany and Ashara, kind of these purple-haired beauties, and then Quentin and Howland as the kind of more, as, as, the, as the mud Cranong Man characters, but it actually working out uh, in the Ashara case, so... Shout out complete. Yeah, no, that that could actually um, the idea of Ashara. Well, because the Danes have that latent 
dragon symbolism via Great Empire of the Dawn. So oh, her yeah. marrying into yep, the Cranog yep. men could be showing you a version of Nissa Nissa, who's a hybrid human child of the forest character. Absolutely, because uh, Ashara has that Nissa Nissa moon maiden stuff. Her whole leaping from the tower is just a metaphor for the moon falling out of the sky and into the sea. Indeed, and there okay. it goes, exactly. Yeah, so... Um, let me yeah, go to the chat. I've been ignoring the chat here. I've been talking to you for a little bit. So, guys, if go you have it. asked a good question in the last 20 minutes uh, that I did not comment on and you would like to repeat it now, feel free. I will. I saw some good comments going by there. I'm seeing lots of net neutrality jokes. Uh, they throttled back the green seers, someone said. Uh, no, so. But I'm uh, yeah, Nian of the Wise mentions that dragons burn trees, dragons plant no trees, quote unquote. But the thing is that Danny does plant trees. As she does, she, that's exactly what she does in Marine. She plants a bunch of trees. So that's actually a little bit of a false dichotomy that I think Danny has to pierce. And that she, she actually, you can't be a ruler just by burning things down. And Aegon wasn't that kind of ruler either. You also have to plant trees. Oh, certainly. I think it's, it's right. It's a question of what kind of dragon you want to be. I mean, Euron has the imagery in the Forsaken of a forest burning behind him. So, I mean, that's the kind of dragon he wants to be. But, but at the same yeah, time, a burning tree is also a symbol of the fire of the gods coming down to man. So it's kind of oh, a dual-edged metaphor. It's not necessarily like burning the tree down. Uh, I think it has to do well, with... Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's something about the Green Seer Weirwood relationship that's like mutually parasitic. It's not necessarily something that should exist, in my opinion. It's it's a little fucked up. I'm not sure the trees sure, like no, it. I, hey, I mean, we look what we've seen about the the Green Seers and Brand's overall vein of magic so far in terms of Hodor, in terms of what might have happened to Jojen, in terms of even. Even the cannibalism we see in Beyond the Wall and Dance, there's, there's definitely a there's a layer to it that's supposed to make you really, really uncomfortable about how these kind of powers make you relate to other life forms. Pretty much full stop. I mean, it's every one of those relationships gets touched in some way. There's that that moment when Bran is like working Hodor and thinks about like what if what if he just told Mira that he loved her? Like in that moment when he's fighting White as Hodor and it's, it's yeah, I agree. There's there's just this element of control and just yeah, it's, there's as as much as you know the weirwood net powers whatever whatever necessary role we have to use them in play in saving the world. There's definitely supposed to be something very creepy there. I agree. Yeah, and just those trees, they look angsty, they look tortured. I mean, they're bleeding from their eyes and their mouth. I mean, it's not like it's not the Zen you know, unity with the tree hippie thing. Like, it's something a lot more uh, devious. But, okay, so going to the chat real quick here. Uh, someone's asking, let's see here. Uh, Lady Stoneheart, Night's Queen symbolism. Potentially so. Even though Lady Stoneheart has the burning burning red eyes and she's animated by fire magic, um, her voice comes out as a choking stream of ice. Uh, so it seems like True. there might be a unification ice-fire symbolism. And earlier I mentioned that if there is a connection between Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen, it would have been Nissa Nissa like dying and going back into the Weirwood Net and then coming back out as some sort of reincarnated ghost creature or something fucking weird like that. And Lady Stoneheart could certainly be that kind of character. She's in the Weirwood Cave and she's reanimated. So she's giving you that idea. And then she's showing you ice and fire symbolism together. So 
we'll have to keep on the trail of Knight's Queen and see what uh, Lady Stoneheart might be showing us. Yeah, I mean, she's a couple resurrections deep. I mean, she's her reanimated soul is partially Catalan Stark and partially kind of this inherited soul from Beric Dondarrion and partially pure Valor magic and partially just post-death insanity. So, you know, I didn't think about that. Beric passed her the flame of life, but I didn't think about any of Beric's essence going into her. But that could have happened. You're right. Yeah, I mean, the it's uh, it's. I mean, his soul was kind of corrupting and burning around the edges on its own, and then you had in like the Red Wedding as a kind of metaphysically significant event that you know set ripples back in time. And yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of layers going on with Stoneheart. I mean, she's, you know, like you said, first and foremost a Relore wife, but there's a lot of different layers for sure. Uh, what are your thoughts on Brandon the Breaker? Who was he, and what did he break? Well, we're told that he oh. broke the power of Night's King. Um, sure. Uh, he could have broken... He could be the last hero um, if he yep. took down the Night's King, and last hero broke his sword. So maybe that's part of it. Um, if Brandon the Breaker could also obviously be the Moonbreaker, if he's if that's another name for Azor High. I mean, there's a heavy crossover between these Brandon characters and this Azor High character. Like, all the different versions of the Starks are Brandons, but all the different versions of the Starks overlap with King of Winter, Night's King, and Azor High in various phases, the last hero. So at some point there was a name change. I'm not sure how that worked. And then we've also got the Eldric sure, name, the Eldric Shadow Chaser name, which sounds like the Westerosi version of Azor High. And there's Edric and Elric Starks. Uh, and two of the Last hero echoes in the story are Edric Dane and Edric Storm. So, yes, of course. I was just thinking of those too. Absolutely, tracing the names through the Stark heritage is a fascinating thing in terms of what unites the Brandons or what divides them or what little themes you can see carrying through. They just, yeah, they 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 pop up at these important points in history to kind of unite a lot of different narratives. And yeah, so much of what Bran is witnessing is kind of his part in that and his, his place in that and what he really wants it to be. And he's surrounded by such a such a dizzying array of symbols, that dude. So yeah. So Brandon, so uh, Brandon, uh, who's the one that sailed off into the sunset sea and never came back? Brandon uh, the shipwright. Brandon the shipwright, right? Who might have might have been the ancestor to the far winds? We don't know. And he sailed into the sea and never came back. Yes, indeed. Until into the sea. The but yeah, exactly. It's the same into the weirwood net. And then his his son burnt the ships. Which is basically setting the weirwood net on fire. So those, yeah, you know, those become interesting. And then you've also got like uh, the Moon King Stark and Ice Eyes Stark. And if you put those two oh, together, yeah. you basically have Euron, who has a moon face, and he's got at least one eye that symbolizes ice, and the others. <clears throat> Did you have any other Brandon the Breaker comments? Uh, no, I, I, I think you pretty much covered it there. There's, it's, you know, around yeah, every every Brandon you have these kind of. There's a kind of hidden story and a hidden duality to each of them as you kind of break down what exactly they did and what it might mean. But, no, I think, yeah, you covered it perfectly. Here's a good comment from Arlo Banta, who's had a several good comments today. I'm curious how you think the High Towers will play into Euron's invasion. So that's a question for you. You you hit on it but didn't really get into it, so go for it. Yeah, sure. The High Towers are fascinating, the modern High Towers late in the Melora, uh, because you, you know, Observing a city from atop the cloud, there's so many possible reasons to do that. One is that you're looking far away from the city. There's, you know, what Tate said about, you know, being able to see the wall from the top. So that could certainly be a clue that they're aware of the long night, aware of the others in some respect. 
uh, or just using a glass candle from a top there. There's, being atop the tower is something you do if you want to look over the over the city, and you want to be observing it from above. That's, you know, it's, uh, there's the great imagery of shadow of the high tower working like a clock, almost like what's going to could be a history of Old Town or a doomsday clock. But there's just many ways to think about what exactly is going on there. Or it's something you do if you're kind of afraid at what's the what is at the base of your tower, which is, of course, the, the, the long history of the, the deep ones and old Motown's overall look crafty in tone, kind of all wrapped up in that, that, uh, that labyrinth, the, the, the base of the high tower. And so in terms of their overall role in Euron's story, I think, you know, the, we get this sense of, despite the return of the Age of Wonder and Terror and despite Old Town's own history, that the Citadel is working very, very hard to repress that narrative and say that that's not actually what's going on. And Sam was told by uh, Marwin when he arrived that, you know, if you bring this up, they'll basically kill you. So I think in terms of the, the Hightowers could first get wrapped in by being the people Sam eventually goes to with his story about what's going on with the wall. And they believe him or they already know about it. Uh, but I think in terms of what their link to Euron's plot could be, if, if Sam's horn indeed turns out to be the horn of winter, they might be the ones to figure that out. He may have been carrying it around to have a conversation with him about what he saw, what he found. That could come up naturally. The same Say person again? also. The same person also asked, "How would you fix the Horn of Winter? Does it need fixing?" Yeah, that's an excellent question. Because John did try to blow it. It is cracked. Who knows if, what the rules are? If you have to, you know, want if you, if it tense batters, if it needs to be south of the wall, there could be any number of magical rules there. But yeah, the high towers. I think to me, if someone needs to fix it, the high towers maybe know how to. Maybe could do that. Been, they've been just reading about magic books on top of their magic tower in their magic city for ten years. So I think that's kind if, of the if answer. Someone has to do that. Is that they the the high towers have knowledge, and sure. Sam has artifacts, and Euron has all kinds of dark intent and artifacts and knowledge, and so there's multiple ways that that could combust together for sure. Um, so yeah, this, I mean the fun of Old Town man is there's just so much stuff like this doing around like. Then there's Marwyn, then there's the Death of Dragons, then there's the Faithless Man, then there's just, there are all these, I mean, yeah, that's the core of what got me thinking about the Eldritch Apocalypse stuff, is realizing that Old Town was just like these, like, cosmic cannons all just pointed at each other, ready to just completely go off, and then you're on threads into town. So, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of exciting stuff there. I'm, I'm really, that's one of the things I would look for most if and when we get the Winds of Winter, would be seeing what the high towers are up to. So there, there's some office in the uh, Citadel that you get by drawing the black stone. What was that? Do you remember what that is? Um, remind you know what I'm talking about? I, I remember, it's the, I, I, I recall it, but only vaguely at the moment. Mm, I think it's in Feast. Um, Probably. It wasn't the... No, it was the pedestal. I, I, I don't recall off the top of my head. I remember what you're talking about, though. Yeah, it, it tickled me just because it mentioned Blackstone, but let's see here. Certainly. So the, yeah. if you go be between the Citadel and the Starry Sept of Old Town, there's just a ton of stuff that reminds you of the Bloodstone Emperor. Like the inside of the mm. Starry Sept is... The whole Sept is black marble. And then inside, it's meant to look like the galaxy, like all the candles are meant to be like stars. So it's like, I don't know, there's a lot of... One day I'll Absolutely. do a write-up on the connections between the Faith of the Seven and uh, Bloodstone Emperor and all that stuff. I, oh, I hit, yeah, that would be great. I hinted on it one time in a, a Westeros.org post. Uh, yes, okay, so it says, 
is oh the seneschal is he the seneschal said sam confused maester amon said his name was norin not for the past two turns there's a new one every year they fill the office by lot from amongst the archmaesters, most of whom regarded as a thankless task that takes them away from their true work. This year, the black stone was drawn by Archmaester Walgrave, but Walgrave's wits are prone to wander, so Theobald stepped up and said he'd serve his term. So that's interesting. Right. That might be like a, a usurp, uh, usurpation clue right there. Like you've got the guy that drew the black oh, yeah. stone, and Walgrave is the one that manages the ravens, the white ravens, right? Yeah, that's great, yeah. I'll have to go back there. There's also the weirwood that's at the Isle of Ravens is is like a metaphor for the Bloodstone Emperor. It's got purple moss draped over its face, so it gives you the whole purple hair idea. But then it's half yep, yep. dead, which is exactly like the Bloodstone Emperor who's half dead. Um, and then the Isle of Ravens was supposedly the home of a pirate lord in the Age yes, of indeed, Heroes, of course. which is yet another clue about the pirates from Ashai, and, uh, which is Azor High. So... Uh, there is a cool exchange that went down in the chat here. So, um, Nienna the Wise mentioned, Dragon people set trees on fire, reach for the fire of the gods. And then Chicken Lipstick pointed out that olive trees are a gift from the Roman gods. And Danny was planting olive trees. So that basically makes her like a god, giving trees to the people, which is great. Oh, absolutely. Um, sure, yeah. I mean, like... And then the, the end of the wise said, well, you got to have oil to light the trees on fire. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Although I don't think olive yeah, oil is the, the most flammable kind of oil, but I guess it works. That's a good point. You could probably, you could probably do better than that. But yeah, Danny herself has that great line where she thinks about how lonely it would be to be a god. And how she starts to feel like that sitting atop her pyramid. And totally. that, I think you're right earlier about dragons plant no trees is only kind of one side of that. There's both creation and destruction elements rippling stories. Sorry, you cut out a quick second. Did you ask me a question at the end there? Oh, no, I was just, no, I was ending with just the uh, creation of instruction stuff and Danny's imagery. That would carry yeah. on, good sir. Okay, so let's see here. You, yep. I'm going to go back to the chat in a second, but you, your basic theory is that Euron is going to blow the horn and that this is going to break the wall and that that is how Euron is tied to the others or will trigger the long night or whatever, right? Yeah, he's got the line, perhaps we can fly, all of us. How will we ever know unless we leap from some tall tower? And I think that's his leap. Yep, yep. So do you think he's doing this intentionally to bring in the invasion of the others, or does he think it's going to do something else? Well, if he indeed has, if he was indeed visited by uh, Blood Raven as a child in his dreams, which there's a you know, ton of evidence for that, ranging from his talking about the flying dreams, to the crow's eye as a nickname, to just the eye and bird imagery, and the blood eye as, as, a, as an image in the Forsaken. You know, the, the point of Blood Raven visiting you in your dreams, if we can take Bran as a model, is him showing you the, the heart of winter and that the long night is coming. So if that indeed happened, he, Euron does know about that. He, whether he necessarily makes a connection from the horn to the wall, who knows? He does have a line in at the King's Mood about uh, a crow can espy death from afar which, again, sounds like he's not just talking about the war, but a great, a larger source of death to come. And, of course, the line from the Forsaken about uh, these are the last days when the world shall be broken and remade. So I think he is drawing some connection there, but there's no sign as of yet that he knows about the horn or that he knows about it as the vessel to bring down the wall. So he would, there, would, there would still need to be some connective tissue there, I think. Yeah, like all of the stuff tying Euron to the others is purely <laughs> symbolic. 
It's nothing that Euron oh, yeah. is doing or saying consciously as of yet. And he seems to be focused on dragons. So it almost seems like he might break the wall or trigger the invasion of the others by accident. Like he'll be trying to do something else and that will be a fallout. And I think that that is possibly what happened originally where Azor Ahai was not sure. trying to create the others or cause a long night. He was trying to do some, some sort of something along the lines of obtaining power for himself and accidentally possibly he broke the moon. He might not have been trying to break the moon. And, and you know, this is one of the things that people struggle with, the idea that a human can do anything to affect uh, comets or meteors or moons or sure, anything like sure. that. And so uh, that might be a thematic thing. Like, it's possible that nobody did magic that breaks the moon, and it's entirely, you know, the moon broke on its own, and that the myths on the Earth just parallel and all that. Uh, I do have specific ideas about how to break the moon, though, and the best idea that I have is Dragonbinder Horn. And the thing about Dragonbinder Horn is that it compares to Lightbringer in many ways. Sure, it's, sure. It splits the air like a sword thrust. The sound of it is a, a shivering hot scream, which gives you the ice and fire. So it's an ice and fire sword that splits the air, but it's also like a, a scream. The word whale is used, which makes you think of Nissa Nissa's yeah. cry that broke the moon. That's the thing about the Absolutely. Lightbringer myth is it tells you it was a sound that broke the moon. And the other idea I have is that the moon was literally stabbed by a sword, by a comet. But the thing is, yeah, right. the, exactly. the horn works as both. The horn is both a sound and a stabbing implement especially when you consider the comet to be a dragon with horns, it basically horned the moon. <laughs> You've got the idea yeah, right. of that's, a horn. Perfect. You see what I'm saying? And then they describe the horn as a sword when it's, when exactly. it's sounded. Yeah. And it's supposed to bind dragons, yeah. but comets are dragons. So we're given this idea that somehow the sound steered the dragon into the moon. And I don't know how that works, but that's kind of the way that it makes the most Monster sense. Flame. Yeah, sure, so... Sure, no, that's, yeah, I can see that unfolding perfectly. That's, and then, of course, you have that. the biggest sword that parallels Lightbringer in the story is Ned's Ice, and it gets turned into Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, which is a sword named after a scream. <laughs> Completing that's the true. I never put that together before. That's great. It's pretty good stuff. And then, and then you look at you look into the blade of Widow's Whale, and what do you see? Waves of blood and night. Yeah, I thought about that before. Those, those, the, the way those colors intersect is, is indicative of a lot of delightful things. But I never linked it together like that before. That's, yeah. Then the other part of it is really well. there's something called the killing word that Ravenous Reader has picked up on. And so often sure. there are these scenes where words are like knives and swords or words activate things songs that yeah. trigger magic and she's written a great essay called the killing word which you can find on uh westeros.org just by looking up ravenous reader and killing word and you can see all okay. the great examples uh, it's all over the prologue uh will so will is like the green seer he climbs the tree and says a prayer and then the others come yeah. and, and kill his friend that he's basically kind of mad at <clears throat> so right sure 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 there's a whole summoning spell thing that goes on. I don't want to do a bad, like, quick paraphrasing, so do check out The Killing Word by Ravenous Reader. But that, that speaks into the whole idea of sound and song as the, as the moon-breaking magic. So there's something going on there, and it's always hard to tell what's literal and what's metaphor, but I just charge on ahead and let you guys sort it out. So 
That's my policy. Oh, sure. I mean, that connects to so many things. That connects to Dracarys as the kind of literal killing word for Danny's dragon. Mm. You know, for summoning them into battle. Um, uh, and like, you know, we said the burning glyphs on something like Dragonbinder or Mance's Horn is that kind of, or just, or just hell, or just in the beginning there was the word. There's a lot of good resonance there for sure. Oh, yeah. So you would like this essay. And yeah, guys, I'm, I'm uh, so, after sure. Sounds right up my alley. So let me do the let me do the PSA here. If you don't follow poor Quentin on Twitter, well, first of all, if you're not on Twitter and you're in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, you should stop hanging out on the other social me- mediums that you're just you're messing with. Because I find that the best the best action is on Twitter, and you definitely need to follow poor Quentin because there's something called the A Song of Ice and Fire read through, and what it does is it basically tweets out line at a time the whole it's on a whole read through and so what my man quentin over here does is he piggybacks on those posts and gives you like instant analysis on what's going on and i frequently retweet it because it's like straight mind-blowing so yeah if you hate twitter you should just a lot of fun so uh throw out your twitter handle yeah so i just go by poor quentin on twitter p-o-o-r-q-u-e-n-t-y-n uh, and I am just poorquentin.tumblr.com is also my site there. But yeah, the, the read through stuff is fun. They just got to a feast for crows, which I love dearly uh, and think is, is horribly underrated. So that's been a lot of fun to talk about. Yeah, you've been all kinds of fired up about feast. It's true. Yeah, yeah, it's my baby. It's a really strong book from a thematic standpoint. Um, I think that's yeah, one that's of the what great. I love about it. Yeah, it really does have some unifying themes. Because uh, when you write, uh, as you know, half of us are aspiring writers, and when you're spinning out more than like three characters, you've got 20 characters, you better have some themes that unite all those chapters, or else it's going to be a total clusterfuck. And George, George I couldn't agree more. Very aware of that. Yeah, I think he. What I love about it is that he, I think Keith has something of a black mark. The extent that it does is because it was rewritten so many times, it took so long, and it wasn't what was originally intended, uh, vis-a-vis the five-year gap. But I think. I love that Martin kind of turned and ran the other way with it. And when he realized skipping over five years wasn't going to work, he was like, all right, let's, let, I'm going to write a whole book about just focusing on the immediate aftermath of all these dead people. Just see the absolute opposite way. I'm going to really explore what it is I wasn't able to skip over. And that's something I really love about it. Yeah, A Feast for Capering Little Dwarves was the runner-up uh, title. But they went with Pretty Feast much. for Crows. Better ring. Definitely had a better ring to it. Um, exactly, more remarkable. But yeah, the whole book is just that imagery, from that one image from the House of the Undying of the the beautiful woman as Westbrook being attacked by all the... Yeah, like that feast is just that, you know, taken for a whole book. And it's great because Martin showed you the theme of book four back in book two, right? Totally, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of what the house... And, and then it, like, goes to the next room is the the image of the Red Wedding. So it's like, here's what Storm of Swords is going to look like. So yeah, I love, I love the House of the Undying. It's like, here's... here's Here's what I'm thinking. Here's my game plan. It's like it's a pitch. See, I, you know, Martin doesn't use quote unquote an outline, but I think he uses a lot of different things in lieu of an outline. So the mythical astronomy is one because it's just a template yep. that's moldable and you can spin, use it to spin out action and love making scenes and whatever else. But if you're like, he's so familiar with like the, you know, the five act structure and the hero's journey and all this stuff. And when you've got that stuff sort of just embedded into your fiber, it's natural from book two to be able to write about the Feast for Crows part of the story cycle. So even if he doesn't have the plot lines for Feast laid out yet, he knows what that book is going to be about thematically because he's thinking about the entire story in a five act structure, right? 
I completely agree. Uh, he's trying to use those images to send back meaning, not even not just plot information. And I think he lays down the yeah, he, it, it, it's a total setup. It's groundwork in terms of tone that I think is something he does really well. It's kind of letting you know how a later part of the story is going to feel. He does that, I think, multiple times. Let's see here. I saw a good comment a little back here. Uh, is there any yeah, symbolism or association of John with violet or purple, being that he's a product of two spectral colors, red and blue, with violet being the brightest and most intense of the spectrum? No, they've, they've really kept all the purple away from John, because I think yeah, it would have like given away the Targ thing, so. Yep. <clears throat> I think his merging of ice and fire is more about the black ice symbol. It's about the freezing of fire. He's compared to Dragonglass over and over and over, and he's his name, Snow, but he black was always his color, makes him a black snow, which is the same thing as black ice. And the sword he wants is Ned's ice, which is black. And he found the dragon glass, which is frozen fire, and it looks like black ice. It's the same damn thing. So, like, absolutely, that's, that's whole John's thing, and that's actually what my next episode is going to be about. This will give me a chance to promo. So, my next episode is going to be RLJ, a recipe for making ice dragons, and it's all about <laughs> this formula. Okay, it's also awesome. because the idea of since Rhaegar parallels Knight's King and Lyanna parallels Knight's Queen. The conception of John is the same thing as the conception of the others. And John, in turn, has a billion parallels to the others, uh, some of which I had in the last episode. Like when he looks at the, the, uh, the wildlings and they're like, some of the you know, others recognize John as long-lost brothers or whatever. Sure, so sure. John is kind of like the good other. But the whole purpose of the next episode is going to be to show you the meaning of John as the song of ice and fire, as a symbol of unity of ice and fire. Because the unity of ice and fire is about two things. It's about frozen fire and burning cold. And the others are the cold that burns, and the Night's Watch are like frozen fire. And so both of these things represent an ice and fire unity, but like from opposite ends. And so I'm going to try to say that in a way that, that makes great. sense that'll be my next episode <laughs> i love it i mean yeah the most classic example is, is the the cache john finds of the fifth of the first one which is frozen fire his heritage literally wrapped up in a nice watch flow but that's him that's exactly what he is so i think oh i didn't even think about that it's thing. inside a cloak oh that's great i'm, I'm using that that's good right on man yeah it's, i think i look forward to that it sounds like a great episode so the the thing that i like about it is um so you remember how Danny sees the blue flower in the chink in the wall in yeah. her dream, right? And of that's course. obviously a foreshadowing of John as a flowering of Leanna's heritage at the wall, all right? So this is yep. John's personal symbolism embedded in the wall. The thing is the wall is an ice moon symbol, and Leanna is an ice moon symbol. So when you see something embedded in the wall, that's actually like John's little seed inside Leanna, or like this black meteor inside the ice moon. So then the other scene where we see John's symbolism inside the wall is the one where at sunset, he sees the last light fading and he sees streaks of red fire turn to rivers of black ice in the cracks of the wall because the wall is oh, weeping and there's water sure. in the cracks of the wall. So he sees red fire, that's like Rhaegar's fire, turning to black ice. That's fire being frozen, and the result is black ice, which is the same as obsidian and valerian steel. So that's literally John's conception happening in the uh, wall. We right. see Rhaegar putting his red sure. fire into the wall, turns into black ice. That's John. So that's going to be um, 
Ooh, I've got a super chat from Stormy, 4400. Uh, there was another one earlier uh, that I missed too. Let's see, but it wasn't attached to a question. It was just uh, thanks for being awesome, I guess. Well, thank you. Well, there you go. That's done. <laughs> exactly. Well, that sounds, that sounds great, man. That's a, a really potent. I can, I can see that in my head. That sounds like it's going to be good. I'm getting better at mentioning the astronomy framework just as a reference and then focusing more on the characters sure. because that's what really people want to hear about is the characters. Like the astronomy angle is neat, but if it just becomes like hunting for meteor symbols, then it's like it's only got so much interest. So I'm I know exactly to... what you mean, man. I've had that with my own stuff. Like you can talk about the kind of the Lovecraftian roots of Euron or the way he's connected to these past characters within the universe. But for me, you know, you need the you need damp hair to kind of emotionally ground that and see and like and so this is what it, that looks like to just a human who's just trying to be a person in the world. This is what kind of your own crusade looks like through his eyes and his own personal religious struggle. So yeah, it's it's true. It's the fun is to play with the the structure of it. You got to ground it in the characters eventually, or it doesn't mean that much. Exactly right, and you know Martin beats that message into our brains it's all about the human heart and conflict and he obviously loves world building it's not like the only oh, yeah. thing he cares about is the human heart and conflict he's basically saying that all the other stuff is worthless if it's not centered around human characters that are compelling the rest of it is all window totally. dressing and it's fun and it's definitely worth geeking out on and it's not unimportant you know a good story has to have a good setting right so you want to have both yeah. But if you don't have the story, you, you don't have Jack. That's that's the message. So no, that's true. I mean, it's it's just context. But in the it's you know in great stories, characters enrich context, and context enrich character, and they they make each other work better than they would have without the other. And I think I think Martin's really really good at that. Yeah. So Joe Magician points out. Uh, so Rhaegar gave his seed to Lyanna, and she took his soul yep. to make a white shadow, symbolically, or a ghost. And I think that's yeah. So when John is resurrected, I suspect he's going to look a little more like his wolf. He he's probably will have white hair. I'm hoping for white hair and red eyes myself. Yeah, me too. Me too. <clears throat> yeah. Maybe a little red tint. Thing. I absolutely. He'll he, look more like a Targaryen know, too, with white hair. That's true. It, that's the great thing. He, he can both look more weirwoody and more Targaryen-y at the same time. What does that And I think symbolically that would make a lot of sense. So absolutely. I mean, that's you know that's the, that's what the Age of Wonder and Terror is about, right? All these kind of meta narratives coming together, and you learn the connections among them. And that's I think that's so much of. And we were talking on Twitter the other day about how Winds of Winter is going to be just a, what an insanely trippy book it's going to be, and how like psychedelic psychedelically oriented each storyline really is going to be with only a couple of exceptions yeah that was a and fun course, little list i started listing it out and i was yeah. like so bran is tripping his balls off aaron's tripping sure. his balls off danny's like kind of hallucinating and about to meet a dothraki horde and maybe get her hands on some glass candles and we just went down and down and down and it's like i think Ariane martell has a sober plot line and like that's about it <laughs> it's like three people yeah and even <laughs> And even she like wandered into a cave of the children of the forest in one of her winds of winter chapters. So even he, even she has it around the edges, even if it's not the central thrust of her story. But yeah, I mean, yeah, she's relatively sober. Sansa's story is relatively sober so far. Sansa, yeah. Uh huh. Um, which is kind of, I mean, that's that's part of the part of the thrust of Sansa, generally speaking. But is that her story? It's mostly focused on that. But yeah, across the board, winds of winter is going to be a very trippy book, and part of that. 
you know, part of the allure of the psychedelic experience or vision or whatever you want to call it is the idea of, of, of bringing a lot of different meta narratives together and bringing a lot of different philosophical, spiritual, ecological ideas into harmony or unity, as you were talking about. And I think well, that's going to be a lot of what wind is about. For... Oh, we got a glitch in the matrix. Proclaiming the Messiah is by different people. Damn you, Ajit Pai! Sorry, I was just cursing out Ajit Pai. You glitched a little bit. That's what we do now. Every yep. time there's a glitch on the internet, we're just blaming Ajit Pai. Straight up. It's his fault. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Sorry. Let's go with that. Um, so let me ask you a question, actually, about that Ariane chapter. The thing that jumped out of that one to me was the stone faces uh, that look like weird faces. So for those of you who may not sure. have read that chapter, Ariane is in the Rainwood, which is a place that we're told was an old stronghold of the children of the forest. And she, they end up underground in a cave, and they see stone faces that look like weirwood faces. And the people in the party take this to be a children of the forest place when they see the faces. But here's the thing. The faces are on stone pillars that are compared to tree trunks, which make you think somehow there's an, a petrified tree underground or something. But then there's faces also in the wall. And the wall's definitely really? not a petrified tree. So... They're the same faces carved in stone. So this opens up an entirely new can of worms. Can green seers see through these stone faces? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting question because it could, it could just be, you know, it could just be another kind of man reaching out to God situation where people are just trying to recreate the faces and hoping that the, you know, that the, that the green seers can see through them, but, you know, ultimately didn't. But the fact that you have that connection between the, the two kinds of faces there suggests the possible commonality. And you have a kind of recurring thing we've already seen in the release Wind of the Winter chapters where Bran is basically everywhere and watching everyone do everything in every storyline somehow that we're already seeing kind of develop. So I think that could be a hint at his kind of way into to this particular storyline. Absolutely. And uh, a couple of my friends have a little... Our other tinfoil about how one steers a comet besides the horn would be some sort of astral projection, green seer thing, sure. where Bran can fly and ride a dragon, but it's not a dragon dragon that he'll rides. You know, it's, we call this the astro Bran theory. Um, and so like one, one of the pieces of evidence for it is that there's reference to the Song of Stones, and the children of the forest mm -hmm. language is like, uh, like a brook, but also like stones or something. So... It, when we see these stone faces, now we're wondering, like, wait a minute, can the children of the forest work stone somehow? And the other thing about that is um, uh, Storm's End, one of the wacky rumors about Storm's End is that the children of the forest or Bran the Builder helped shape the, mag helped shape the stone with magic, which sounds like the Valerian-fused stone process, but is now attributed to the children of the forest. And we're not really told of them working with stones. So now it's like... That's true. There's some questions for me now about the stone and children of the forest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then that gets back to any possible links to all the oily blackstone and non-oily blackstone stuff going on all over the world. So 
yeah, there's definitely some interesting interesting strands of the web to be crawled upon there for sure. Yeah, symbolically, the meteors are like star seeds that cause the weirwoods to grow. Like that's one way you can interpret the lightning bolt sure. striking the tree and setting it on fire is that the meteor is is setting the tree on fire. I prefer to interpret that as a metaphor for the green seer as the fire entering the tree, and that's what sets the tree on fire. Um, but okay. there's sure. the whole the thing is the there's also this whole mushroom and rain metaphor where the weirwoods are like mushrooms because they have the underground root network. And, of course, Blood Raven even has like a mushroom on his cheek. And the rain would be the meteors. So, like, the meteor rain comes down and the weirwood mushrooms sprout up. And there's... Sure, like, and, yeah, after a hard rain. That makes sense. So think about Blood Raven as the meteor in that sense. He's the dragon meteor under the tree. Okay. And in the okay, tree. Okay, yeah. So there's there's this whole line of, of symbolism that has the meteors growing from the star seeds, if you will. And I don't think that's literal because that's too wacky, but he you know, he works the symbolic theme there. So then we have Jon Snow's vision where he sees Bran. And Bran is a weirwood tree, but the weirwood tree yep. grows from the rock. It grows right out of the yeah, rock. Right. It's right. The sapling sprouts from the rock. Right, absolutely. And then, of course, weirwoods turn into stone. And somebody made a comment about, or Neanna the Wise was talking about, maybe grayscale um, is... Sure. I was just thinking that, yeah. ...a metaphor for, like, turning into stone in the way that the weirwoods turn into stone. Because Grey King turns gray, and he's also, you know, a green seer. So I'll have to think more about that. That has potential, Neanna. That's a good tip. Yeah, um, that's, well, that's, that's uh, unexpectedly rich vein for sure. I bet you can mine something good out of that. Uh Ravenous Reader, you said something about Bran and the stone voices. Oh, the gargoyles. So when Bran dreams oh, of yeah, yeah, yeah. climbing the tower, he sees like the gargoyles alive and they have stone voices. That's interesting. We'll get to the bottom of it. There's so many symbolic threads to follow, man. This is why like I was not sad when the Winds of Winter got pushed back. Like, I mean, the reader part of me was sad, but the rest of me was like good because I got a lot of stuff I want to talk about before we get yeah, to Winds. enough to work with. I mean, and that goes back to to Winterfell. I mean, I think it's Bran's second chapter in game, the one where he falls, where he describes Winterfell as being like some, I don't know if he uses the phrase stone tree, but he definitely compares it to a tree, like that it's grown up and unfolded. In oh, yeah, no, Winterfell is, is a stone tree. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Right, right, right. Uh, Westeros so, yeah, history. No, no. So check this out. Uh, Aziz just hit me with a super chat, and he says, are those horns on your head, or are you just happy to see Emmett? <laughs> I'm very happy to see Emmett. So, and likewise, then likewise, I'm happy to be here. Emma Smith sent in a $10 super chat and says, my internet is being ridiculous, so I'm going to have to head oh, out no, early, no. catch up with you later, and have a lovely holiday season. Yeah, plenty of that going around, Emma. Um, yes, indeed, this is true. Emma has kicked me a couple of really great um, comments that are going to be appearing in the next episode, actually. She is one of my patrons. Okay, cool. And she sure. gave me some good stuff. Actually, let me pull up the comment that she left for me on the last episode. All right. Go ahead and talk about Euron for a second. Oh, sure. Um, no, I think, I mean, one of the reasons I love Euron is that he so easily kind of exploits the narrative going on with the Ironborn, where they they kind of believe in this kind of endless rebirth process, but he's, you know, he's making, he, so much about Euron is like, I'm going to make the metaphor real, right? Like instead of you, you know, you Ironborn talk about a metaphorical rebirth, I'm going to actually do that. You know, you talk about 
speaking, Dan Perry used to say, speak the voice of God, I'm going to literally try to, you know, reboot existence with myself as God. And I think so much, so much of what he's trying to do is, uh, you know, he's not satisfied with the stories merely being stories or merely being symbols or merely being images. He wants to hack into whatever the legit power is behind all these icons. And I think you, again, it's, I think there's a comparison there to the faceless men in the way that they're trying to unite all these narratives of, of God and death and try to kind of, you know, get some meaning out of it and kind of like dissolve everything down to the hardcore of what it's actually about. And I, I, that's, and you, I think you have that against the backdrop of the ironborn kind of being lost in their own heads collectively and not knowing what to do as a people and kind of Euron providing this kind of horrifying answer. I just love the, the ways he interacts with context. Uh, it's just excellent stuff. He's, he's, he's Euron Greyjoy. He's fun in context. That's, that's my, that's my summation of the man. I had an observation that, um, because Euron is one of the characters that pulls against the sort of like realistic fantasy vibe, um, he uses sure. foils to keep it grounded. Like for example, in the scene where, you know, I talked about Euron, uh, he has the robe and he's open and he's drinking warlock wine and, you know, the bitch he just fucked is on the bed there and he brings in Victorian and he's all just like, yeah, smell my sexy ball smell. And it's just like super vulgar Direct and quote, stuff. Yep. But the the scene stays grounded because Victorian like rolls his eyes at it. He's sitting there going, maybe we can fly. And he's like, why don't you cover yourself? <laughs> I bet you well, cover your balls yeah, there, buddy. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about urine. It's like, that's what people on a shit ton of acid sometimes look like from the outside. It's just like a kind of a nonsense person in a robe who needs to cover themselves. But yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the urine victarian relationship is really interesting that way because they, neither of them know what the other person is talking about pretty much at any point. Like, they just can't relate to each other because they're just on such different levels of thinking about the world. We're like, Euron just says, you know, they promise the Ironborn dragons and they scream out for grapes. And Victorian says, the grapes are good. You can hold them and then make wine. And they're, you know, that's material reality that you can have and that we're living for. And then Euron just has no, no patience Euron's, for that. Euron's like, you need to drink more shade of the evening. <laughs> exactly. We, what do dragons make? Dragons make woe. So the, the line in there was, uh, yeah, Joe Magician's like uh, paraphrasing Victorian. He's like, bro, there's the window. You know, try it. Go for it. See if you can fly. I'll, I'll sit here and watch. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like, you know, yeah, Euron is, is, is trying for a metaphor, and Victorian's like, no, that's just silly. Just go ahead and jump for it. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's such a... Even when Victorian does encounter, you know, intense magic later in his storyline, he's still just kind of... He's, he's very kind of just, like, by the book and, like, following his, his, his steps with it. He doesn't, he doesn't really embrace it on its own terms. He doesn't really know how. Uh, Rusted Revolver is talking about a bunch of rescues in the chat. Rusted Revolver, what do you? I missed the first comment. What, what's the thread here? Fill me in, dude. I, I've got I've got a few people that are like ahead of me on the curve. They're like ten episodes ahead of wherever I am because I mentioned an idea one time to them and they went bonkers with it and they're like telling me all about. You know, this and that. Sure. Or like the Green Sea is ravenous readers' discovery. 
which I eventually will write about, but she told me about it like almost a year ago now. So there's like an event horizon of symbolic discovery that various people are pushing out. And I'm sort of like following behind trying to con- you know, grab the main things and the most clear things and, and build a cohesive sort of narrative out of it. But, um, yeah, That's some a of great the- phrase, event horizon of symbolic discovery. I might have to steal that for something. Oh, Take, please know, the, do. Title of my next free jazz album. Yeah. Oh, uh, so Ravenous Reader says they're talking about Tyrion as a child, as the monster, as the child rescued mm-hmm. from the others. Did you, by the way, were you able to hear the whole first part of the stream when you were trying to get on or no? Yeah, I was able to catch quite a bit of it. So yes, okay. All right. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, because Tyrion is, is obviously, he's got the child symbolism because he's a half-man, which could also work as a hybrid human-child, you know, of the forest symbol. That makes a lot of sense. And he's sort of, um, if he's really a dragon person, then he's a dragon person raised by a different family, just like Jon Snow. And yeah, yeah. okay cool so there you go guys um yeah you know a lot of good changeling stuff there for sure so i'll and, have um, i'll have to dive into Tyrion when i study that uh last hero stuff sure and Tyrion, Tyrion's relationship to the north is so interesting you know because it's not so prominent in his story especially after like burning winterfell got taken out but like he's you know the first note from his pov is hearing a wolf howl and then he goes north and looks off the wall and has that moment with john and he thinks about it later in clash of kings you know so that stuff is it's not prominent, but it's buried there. Like I think there's like a seed to be watered later once we get to more of the end game stuff. But that's kind of that'll help guide Tyrion in terms of what his role in terms of all that is. I also wonder about the fact that um, there's Monster himself is involved with the baby switch, you know, sure, um, sure. and and John even dreams about it <laughs> as hacking the heads off the two babies and switching them. So it's like it's yep. a real literal switch. And the baby he's switched for is the child of a horned lord, Mance, and he is named yep. Aemon yep. Battleborn, and Aemon is a dragon's name. So I have yet I have I'm working on figuring that out there, but there's some serious uh precedent and echoes of history going on there, I think. Absolutely. And that ties of course into Egan and the baby the you know, swapping out the baby there as well, if that's indeed what he did, which yeah probably isn't but it it plays with the same tropes for sure oh ravenous reader that is a Tyrion snarling like a wolf among the dragons come on that is a tortured interpretation he's snarling like a dragon among the dragons come on sure dragons snarl she's she's they have mouths and noses this is an old bone that we pick with each other i'm just i'm just playing (laughs) we all got old fights yeah 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 I'm actually not 100% sold that Tyrion is a Targaryen. I think he is, but, you know, it could just be symbolism. I'm I'm on the fence about that. I see a fair amount of evidence before and against it. So, not before and against it, before and against it. Language, who needs it? Uh, But, yeah, I I could really argue that either way. And people have to remember that when we're talking about Jon or Tyrion, uh, there's multiple ways that the secret Targaryen thing can work out. Like, Jon... 
he'll have a claim to the throne, yes, but th that might not be the important thing. It might be the bloodline that's important. And with Absolutely. Tyrion, his being a Targaryen might be to to cause him massive psychological identity issues. And same for John. So there's just exactly. a lot of ways that George can... Just because Tyrion is a Targ doesn't mean he'll ride a dragon. Or if he rides a dragon, maybe he'll die riding the dragon. Like, <laughs> There's just so many ways it can happen that aren't going to be some campy, like, oh, Tyrion's a dragon rider, and he's saving the day, and George likes short people, and, you know. There's any possibilities. But yeah, all of it, I think it's definitely a huge part of it, especially for John. Hey, um, are you uh, about out of time? That's true. I, will, I can stick around for, like, let's say five, ten minutes more. Okay. If you have something else in mind. Okay. Well, let's see. There there was a couple of things that I was thinking of. Um, sure. What? Do, so let's talk about, let's go to the logistics of the plot. What do you think is going to happen sure. with Victarion, Dragonbinder, and Daenerys at Marine? So Victarion, there's definitely strong setup for Victarion blowing Dragonbinder. He's getting very obsessed with it, getting kind of jealous of it. He sets up in his release wins chapter three kind of red shirts to blow it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but I think he's definitely going to uh, attempt to blow it at some point. I think McCurl might be encouraging him to do it. You know, I think it definitely killed him, for sure. I think that's how Victarion plot. And then it, in terms of what it does dragons, or Dragon, I think it's... I think Rhaegal's still out over the bay, and Viserion has gone back into the city, if I recall correctly. So what it does to Rhaegal, I mean... Uh, the fact Makuro's been doing to it, when he wants to do it, if he's been trying to, like, just shut it down so they can't steal dragons from Dany, maybe it won't have much of an effect or just turn Rhaegal kind of nuts for a bit. Um, but it could... Or, or it could work as well as, like, in Sorceling a Dragon in Europe name and, and temporarily giving him a dragon to play with. I think, yeah, the question is, that it definitely has to give something to react to. You know, at, at the moment she's embraced fire and blood and embracing her draconic purpose and thinking of herself as a dragon who does not fight trees and all this stuff. You know, losing a dragon or having it go wrong somehow, uh, I definitely think is, is central to what happens there. I don't know if the timeline-wise, I don't know when Danny shows up again. It's the thing in terms of our reaction to that, though. So I think Victorian probably might be dead by the time she gets there, and she has to have to deal with the fallout. Okay, so that was I was going to give you a couple more specific questions, which were, what's the interaction between Victorian and Danny? So you just said you think Vic might be dead by the time he gets back. And so you think uh, if... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Vic has to last long enough to use his awesome firearm in battle. We have to see that for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not sure. I mean... Once he, once, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see his reaction once he finds out Dany isn't there, what he tries to do, if he tries to blow Dragonbinder for Ben, or if he wants to wait around, you know, who knows. So he might just pour, he might pull the Quentin move and just try to steal the dragons. Forget the forget Danny. Yeah, I mean, Vic and Quent are interesting parallels and contrasts in a lot of ways. Um, so I could see him... I could, see, I could definitely see him attempting to, to dragon himself or attempting to just because there's also the Valanci creeping behind him, which is larger than his. So if he sees them on the horizon, he might panic, and he might pull out them there. So, you know, that, so that that could be how he reaches his untimely demise. So my but, but Makuro is is dead. Yeah, go ahead. 
Well, just, I think that's, that's where my last question was going to be, is how is Euron planning to swoop in and collect the spoils? Like, we all know he's playing Vic somehow, but how is, how is he going to pull that off? Yeah, I mean, his original plan was to go east himself, and that might have been one of those moments uh, when the author, like, Littlefinger's comments about how he was hoping for a few quiet years. It might be one of those moments where he's, like, showing what his plans were going to be before Fiber got that scrap. So he might have played the thing you're on East himself at one point, but once you're on made the call to knock on himself, the, the, the dusky woman became his way of keeping tabs on Victorian. I think she's either his spy or kind of more outlandishly that he's uh, skin changing in her. Because uh, he, you know, tongue removed from all, all his crew and all his so they can never tell that that's what's happening to them. And there's the when Makuro enters the cabin, she's sort of silent and two words which are really strongly associated with Euron throughout the story. And then you've got Makuro. So I think she is Euron. She is Euron's method of keeping tabs on Victorian. So, yeah, I mean, we haven't really seen what she's up to after that. But if, if Euron is going to receive control of that from Makuro, I think she's going to be his vessel. Um, and I think it would be, in terms of, it would be, Kind of come up and for Victorian to realize at the end, maybe in his very last moment, that the dusty woman has to work for Euron. So I think, yeah, she's definitely his vessel for taking control of the situation there. So do you think, is Euron going to come to Slaver's Bay? Is he going to show up in Slaver's Bay to claim the dragon, or? I don't know. I mean, is it just going to fly back to, is it going to fly to Euron? Because he's claimed the horn, or right, which might which might be kind of which might be kind of silly if the dragon just goes zoop across half the world, but it also could be awesome depending on it's executed. Um, but yeah, Euron, I think he's probably pretty focused on the 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 old town, the Reach area. It seems like that with the Redwind fleet coming, especially. So, so I would if if if, it, if one goes in one direction or the other, I would lean towards the dragon going to him rather than him going to the dragon at this point, unless you know. Again, Euron's got magical tricks up, up his sleeve. He could pull off anything, I'm sure. Yeah, because if the, if one of the dragons just flies away, that's going to be cool. It's like, well, where's he going? And then we'll look for him to show up a few chapters yep. later. You know, that would be pretty cool. Exactly. Um, like, I was I was thinking about this, like, you could do a thing where, like, it takes off and then, like, Bran has visions of it traveling and, like, you know, John has a vision. Like, you could, you know, sprinkle it in in between where it shows up and what throws. So that, that, could, that could be executed pretty well. Okay, so there's one topic I've been saving for the very end. There's no way we could talk sure. about it until the end. And that is all right, all right. Danny's dream of the frozen penis. Go. Yes, of course, the ice dog. How can we forget the mighty ice dog? The, chat, the chat's been going crazy for the last two minutes. Someone suggested it like three minutes ago. And since then, it's been frozen fuck sword. Um, let's see here. Frosty phallus. Uh, Frosty the phallus was a very icy pole. Uh, <laughs> hands of, okay, here's the My best people, one. You do well for yourself. Hands of gold are always cold. Uh, so a cold penis is a gold penis. So it's, it's all really about gold numbers, what we're saying. That's what the song of ice and fire ultimately boils down to. That's here. gold member. But yeah, no, the, yeah, the ice song is a hell of a thing, right? So Danny's dream in Dance with Dragons about. Uh, his door kissing her, but his lips are bruised blue like Euron's, and then when he shoves himself inside his manhood was as cold as ice. So yeah, and that is the strongest, again, like you said, it's purely imagery, it's not narrative, but it's the strongest connection between Euron and the others, for sure. As well, Euron's tensions towards Danny, but it's also 
and this, you know, where we're getting to a lot of your uh, symbolic stuff, is this connection between the others and kind of like procreation and trying to create a child and whether you're on is and all and, and all involved in any way in that. It is yeah, it's kind of the reverse of Knight's King and Knight's Queen, where, you know, Knight's exactly. Queen is the cold womb, and Knight's King has the fiery seed, and here it's, like, flipped around, so we'll have to see. Do you think, um, do you think that Danny is going to join up with Euron? Like, do you think Danny is the hands of white fire lady, or what do you think? Yeah, she's a strong candidate for it, simply because there's the fire connection, the, the color connection, the fact that Euron is seeking her. I could see her joining up with him, except I kind of feel like her dark low point will be like dealing with Egan, and he kind of comes before Euron just geographically in terms of where she's coming from. So I could see her joining Euron, or I could see her like rejecting his temptation as a way to, you know, trying to claw her way back or trying to do something better after fighting Egan. So I could see that going either way. But again, I think I think that's supposed to be a tension at this point, whether we, you know, we don't know whether that's going to happen or not. She does. You know, she he is her type that is hard to deny. Yeah, there's there uh Dario has a lot of parallels to Euron. Yeah, I mean Storm Crows alone makes that parallel clear. Yeah. Uh and, and Drogo, hell, I mean, just in terms of being a you know, uh, just the the slavery and the kind of just intensity of them. Like, you know, I could see how Dany could be attracted to him. I don't know if she'll go for it, but I could see attraction is definitely gonna be there. Yeah, it um it definitely uh, could be paralleling the Star Wars plot, actually. Not that we should start ripping out Star Wars spoilers, but there's some pretty interesting stuff there. Um, I, sure, I definitely, sure. in the show, when Danny went north and started wearing silver, all of a sudden everyone was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, she kind of looks like Night's Queen now all of a sudden. And, um, yeah, it's, it's weird because a lot of times... The Knight's Queen and the Nissa Nissa women are separate. Like with Aegon and his sure, two queens, sure. or with Rhaegon and his yeah, two queens. Exactly. Uh, Rhaegar and his two queens. But other times, and I'm going to get into this in the Sansa episode, we see the Fire yeah. Moon person turn into the Ice Moon Queen. Um, and San the way that Sansa does it is really great because she does a bunch of Nissa Nissa stuff at King's Landing, culminating her with her helping to kill the Sun King Joffrey. Then she turns into a stone and dyes her hair and clothing dark. Yeah. So she's a dark That's stone true. flying away from the sun's death. She lands in the ice moon symbol of the Eerie. So she's more That's like great, the knights. Yeah. She's like the knights king, actually. She's the black stone landing in the ice moon. That's but the thing is that once yeah. she's there, she then becomes knights queen and sits around and makes snow castles and snow knights in the uh, in that one scene. That's an excellent point. I never put that together, but yeah, I can. I can. I like that a lot. I'm looking so, forward to yeah, the fans that's gonna be a great thing. So that's gonna be yeah, because the eerie the symbolism at the eerie is like the strongest ice moon symbolism anywhere. And it's oh, chapter okay. after chapter, frozen sunlight, icy teeth and howling winds and all these things, white marble veined with blue. And uh, yeah, that's going to take a whole episode. But the point is uh, yeah, in so. regards to Daenerys is that if Daenerys were to become to have her fire magic turn cold and she turned into a knight's queen sure. figure she would be there's precedent for it is my point so yeah, i have i, I have agree. that's good stuff basically i just i haven't decided yet whether i think original nissa nissa was knight's queen or not i i just don't know it's possible it's something people it's a ask me a lot to explore brother i'm looking forward to watching you explore it more sadly at that point i should probably bow out i have to get on to work uh but thanks for having me on man it was a delight 
Yeah, I'm glad it finally worked out. We hit the ground running once we got it going there. Yeah, so, totally. Not, it was great. Apologies for my technical delay, folks, but I'm glad I got to be here and talk for quite a while. So, yeah, thanks again, man. All right, and I want to, again, encourage you to do a fresh write-up of your Eldritch Apocalypse theory. Do a, do an updated version and put it somewhere so people can find it, because it's pretty good. I tapped him. I tapped him. But, um, yeah, so just last great plug. You can find me at poorquentin.tumblr.com or poorquentin on Twitter. That's where most of my stuff is. Very easy to find, just like me. Type in poor Quentin and you'll yes, find indeed. him. Type in Lucifer Lightbringer exactly. and you'll find me in like one or two weird Satanist websites. Don't click on those. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, poor Quentin. It's been lots of fun. And I will have that RLJ episode coming out probably right around the new year. It's mostly written, so it's just a matter of when I record it and get it out and stuff. So we've got that to look forward to. Uh, thanks for everybody coming through. Thanks for the super chats. Thanks to all my patrons. And, uh, you know, it sucks, Quentin. I always say thanks to my patrons, but thanks just doesn't really do it justice because it's like I yeah, wouldn't, course, I wouldn't be here. They have a lifeblood. I wouldn't be here on this show. I wouldn't be talking to you. None of this would be happening I get you, man. if it weren't for the folks that donate. So just thanks, guys, and know that you're making all this happen, and you really are patrons of the arts. So with that, I will end the stream. Thanks, guys, and see you next time.